Hello and welcome to this episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me in this episode, we've got... Uh, Bill Esterson, I'm the Labour MP for Sefton Central and newly appointed Shadow International Trade Minister. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, um, Bill. And uh, uh, for listeners, this is the first time we've ever recorded an episode interview uh, via Skype rather than our usual platform due to technical difficulties. So bear with if there's any um, sound interference in the background or anything. Um, but yes, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I have just noticed in the background of your video, there's an R2-D2 toy, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, seeing half the video. That's right. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, big Star Wars fan. Yeah, you're the second person. I was on Sky earlier and somebody else commented, uh, so who's that then? Ah, amazing. At time of recording, it's Wednesday the 22nd, uh, so Parliament's been recalled, uh, sort of. Um, are you, you're not in Parliament, are you? You're walking from your constituency. I'm uh, sitting in my front room with R2-D2 sitting behind me, <laughs> <laughs> which is where I watched the first semi-virtual BMQs. Yeah. Um, uh, and question time more generally, which well, it's it's strange because there are colleagues who are there, um, mm. but there are only there's only space for a handful because of the keeping the two meter rule, yeah. um, which we are now following. Where before the before the recess, to be perfectly honest, we weren't, mm. uh, although we were supposed to be. Uh, and I, it, I think it showed today just how important it is that Parliament is sitting, um, albeit virtually. The the fact that Keir Starmer was able to ask six detailed questions of Dominic Raab and really get into the detail where, as he put it, we are supporting the government where they're getting it right, but um, scrutinising, challenging uh, where they've got it wrong um, mm. be, because we've got to get it right. You know, we, if we want to save lives, if the government's not getting it right, they need to be challenged. And mm. that's the approach. And that was the approach um, when Jeremy was still leader. And it's the approach now that Keir is leader. And I think that's absolutely mm. right. And I, but I think what you are seeing is a more rigorous uh, approach, uh, whether that's from Keir and Angela or from the entire team, because mm. we are now in the, in, in the stage where, you know, it's dragged on a bit. There have been quite a few things that have taken too long. Um, and Keir mentioned some of them today. The testing hasn't been in place. The yeah. there are still problems were still a long way short of where the government has said it was intended us to be. Yeah. Um, we're supposed to have 100,000 people being tested a day. It was 18,000 yesterday. That's not, we're not going to hit 100,000 by the end of next week, mm. as, as claimed. Uh, the PPE simply hasn't arrived. There are all sorts of, of problems with procurement there, and we'll come on to that, I know. Mm. a bit later on Jasper but um, you know honestly we haven't learned from what happened in other countries and I think today's scrutiny in parliament shows why it's just why it's so important that it isn't left to the journalists to ask questions at five o'clock but, but MPs are playing their part and doing their job in it, as, as should be the case in a democracy. Yeah absolutely um, and, and with regards to changing practices and adapting uh, and learning uh, to these new situations um with with your work as an MP, uh, with with casework um, and constituency work, um, has that how how much has that been impacted? How much has that changed by uh, COVID nineteen, or not really? It, it's a very different way of working. Uh, mm. Anna, my staff are all uh, in their own homes, working remotely using mm. technology, and we've had more work 
now than I've ever had in my 10 years as an MP. Gosh. That, that is pretty universally the case. And uh, you've got, I mean, you've got millions of people across the country who are in a very difficult situation, mm. whether that's them or their families being ill, uh, facing mm. the prospect of loved ones dying, which sadly is, you know, has happened with 18,000 people in hospital, possibly even more again. Um, mm. Community and it's a desperate time for for people from a health perspective, and then you've got the financial worries of people losing their jobs, of people who are self-employed having no work, of of businesses not being able to stay open, uh, mm. pay their workers, uh, and with all of the uncertainty that that brings. Um, and then you've got the incredibly important role that our health and care workers, our police, fire service, council staff, if you forget the people are collecting the bins, um, mm. people in the food distribution um, and, and retail sectors in, in keeping yeah. moving and making sure that they get the support that they, that they need is is the most important of all of the work that, that we're doing now. And I have mm. every day people contacting my team asking for support and advice and guidance we're talking to colleagues we're working with the local authority we're working with the police with the hospitals trying to influence government ministers to, to, to unblock some of the difficulties that the people are coming across mm. Mm. so in this time of a pandemic people are finding that more people are finding that their local mp is someone to go to essentially is is your experience someone to go to for advice and for help and support absolutely my more people have come to me in the last four or five weeks and in my previous 10 years for help mm. we get a lot of inquiries about policy matters in normal more normal times but mm. they for advice and support um i've heard from a lot of people who have probably never been in contact with a member of parliament before yeah uh, that is a range of issues, whether it's health related or financial or both. Um, that's absolutely what's happening. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your position as the Shadow Minister for International Trade. What do you think the coronavirus pandemic means for international trade and globalisation um, overall? Do you think, I suppose there's sort of a big debate about this now, do you think it's going to lead to a move towards deglobalization, deglobalized supply chains, as it were? and more domestic national supply chains or in fact is it going to increase interdependence on each other because we've seen how uh how linked different countries and disparate peoples really are and really can be what do you think well we've already seen uh, countries being more protectionist mm. the chinese the indian the turkish governments which are where 80 percent of the ppe comes from are now all insisting that any exports of the other the raw materials or the finished goods have to have government approval. Mm. That wasn't the case five weeks ago. Mm. Uh, that's just one example, and the same applies for um, ventilators. It, it applies for the uh, reagents for testing, and it applies, I suspect, for food, although we're not really hearing it yet, but I think we will mm. hear food. Uh, and it's, it's a real concern that the health crisis is leading to an international economic and trade crisis too mm. and really important that we keep our focus on keeping trade moving albeit with the restrictions that absolutely have to be in place mm. 
so that when we do start to emerge from the lockdown eventually, we're in a position to, to get the economy going again. And international trade has to be a key part to how we do it. Mm. Uh, and we have to be an export-led uh, country. And if we can boost our exports, we can start to deal with some of the um, sort of the trade deficit that we've had for the last 40 years. But, but also, the um, in the end, it's how we will start to deal with a very sizable debt that, that we're building up um, in, in the long term. But more immediately, it is how we rebuild prosperity. It is how we get people back into work. It is how we pay for uh, the public services that have been under so much attack over the last 10 years. And yeah. um, I, you know, international trade is something that was an EU competence for 40 years of our membership. It's now our own responsibility, and I think the mm. government, um, even before the pandemic hit, was struggling to find the expertise and come up with the the answers to some of these things. But mm. it's going to be it's really important now so that we unlock some of these problems with imports of PPE, testing, ventilators, food. Mm. Coming out of the pandemic, we've got to really watch what happens because. We have a government that is very reluctant to intervene and um, provide trade remedies where you get uh, intervention, where you get hostile takeovers, for example, in manufacturing. Now, this is something we had a problem with in the 2015 steel crisis. It's something that um, the ceramic sector, for example, has suffered from where Chinese companies have taken over UK ceramics producers and then closed mm. down. So they could flood the market with their own um, poorer quality goods. Then yeah. There's real problems here for us as a country. We don't look after our own domestic um, production um, uh, and protect it against uh, hostile foreign takeovers. Yeah, the Chinese are quite keen on the idea of, of using their economic power um, in the long term to improve their, their position. And mm. Coming out of this crisis, there's a real, there's a danger that, that that's one of the things that can happen. Mm. Um. So, so, so talking there about um exports and national production, would it would, would it be fair to say then, uh, for you at least in your role, your thinking isn't so much, oh, we need to globalize or deglobalize or be protectionist, not be protectionist. It's a matter of we obviously still need to be trading internationally and keeping up those international trade links, but we also need to be investing more in domestic production so we can be making those exports and um as you said becoming more of an exporting um country than an importing country i was going to say it's a bit like a third way but that's a bit of a as a as a, as a poor pun but i suppose it is sort of a third way in thinking um right because where the debate tends to be it's either we're going to go for protectionist state or a internationalized globalized state yeah, we we have a we have a rule, rules-based system that governs international trade through the WTO, World Trade Organization. And mm. President Trump is undermining the WTO uh, as he is with the World Health Organization mm. because he's very very much against these international collaborative uh, institutions. He likes the idea of a destabilized world because um, that's the model of capitalism that he he favors. Yeah. Um, uh, so we have to resist attempts to undermine the role of, a, of the World Trade Organization as the arbiter of um, fair markets to a degree 
um, and the uh, certainly the arbiter of the rules of, of, of international trade. Mm. Um, it, it is. Um, I mean, I think it's it, it's also really important we think about what our trade policy might look like mm. uh, and uh, some of the other priorities, some of the other really big challenges. And of course, the climate crisis is the one that for the moment has been put to one side, but it hasn't gone away. Mm. Uh, I think we were beginning to realise the um, just how significant um, and how important and how quickly needed needed to be dealt with. Um, and I think investors, international investors, are beginning to see that you you could start to see a divestment out of fossil fuels mm. at last. You started to see the investment community saying, actually, we want to invest in renewable energy or in low carbon technology. And the UK is, has been, and uh, before this crisis anyway, in a very strong position potentially with the right kind of government support to exploit the export markets available in low carbon uh, uh, industries, mm. whether that's the, the potential for um, tidal energy, which is where we actually, we have some of the world's leading companies in what is still a very small um, uh, industry. Mm. Incidentally, we had the world's leading companies in offshore wind and threw that away because the government didn't invest in it uh, after Labour lost power in, in 2010. Yeah, uh, we can't repeat that. We, we mustn't allow that to happen again with tidal energy. Mm. Um, at the moment, the government, until recently, has been putting its UK uh, export finance predominantly mm. into fossil fuels in things like um, uh, oil refineries in Bahrain, not supporting wind or tide or solar um, or other uh, low carbon technologies. And the complaint that, that I hear again and again is really good quality technology companies who are developing low carbon opportunities um, in energy and transport, in agriculture for that matter, mm. are just not finding that the revenue supports there from government. So that's, a, that's something we must really pursue because if we can get behind these industries, they're good for our domestic economy, they're good for getting our own domestic contribution to um, uh, meeting our climate commitments, uh, as, as far as those are concerned, but it's also very good for exports and for helping the rest of the world, not least the developing world, from uh, playing its part and not ending up as it could. Yeah. So we, what we mustn't do is stop the developing world from growing. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got to enable them to grow without them becoming reliant on fossil fuels and just adding to the carbon footprint um, um, as, as, as they begin to improve living standards. So, so yeah. those are longer term challenges, but mm. they are also really good economic and trading opportunities for us as we come out of this crisis. Mm. And climate is the most obvious, but the same applies more generally to a sustainable future and how we support the developing world uh, how we look at uh, a fair trade approach, a fair system of international trade agreements, because it's mm. very unequal trade agreements that we're party to through our membership of the European Union. Mm. They've all been renegotiated or have all already been re-signed as we've become, uh, as we've left the EU. Mm. Uh, uh, and the ones that apply to the developing world were very unequal, very unfair. They disadvantaged farmers in Northern Africa, for example, who wanted to sell their oranges and olives 
mm. Europe by, by putting quotas on them. Uh, you know, though that's not the kind of approach we've got to be much fairer in the way that, that we reach a balance with those sorts of trade and uh, mm. trade agreements. But equally, we've got to be very wary of being disadvantaged ourselves by by having to sign a trade agreement with Donald Trump's United States. Yeah. Puts our national health service on the table, in spite of what he, he in spite of what uh, the uh, our government says. Yeah, yeah. Cut workers' rights or environmental or consumer protections, because these are the sorts of areas where the sort of international trade agreement he would like to sign would uh, allow American corporations to sue our government and undermine any attempts at a sustainable or low carbon um, agenda. And we know that from the sort of agreements that um, uh, all the sorts of actions taken um, actually by Canadian companies mm. who've used those, the, the, the sorts of um, dispute settlement mechanisms that, are, that exist in certain trade agreements to sue uh, foreign governments where their own uh, interests uh, are, are, are put first. Yeah, are at odds with those governments. Yeah. Um. So on on that on that kind of topic of uh, writing more favourable trade agreements for the UK and and also on the point of um, signing trade deals with Trans America. Um. What what you were talking about there. Is it, is it true to say then that um, the substance of international trade and specifically our economic and trading relationship with America is going to be a key priority for the new Labour leadership under Keir Starmer? Um, is the the, um, the kind of thing you were talking about there, it, it seemed very much a continuation of uh, the thinking which was dominant at the previous election. Um, obviously, the uh, press conferences um, which Jeremy Corbyn ran with the uh, discussing, as you said, about how uh, Trump's America would be really keen to get in on the NHS. Um, is that an attack line, and is that a um, approach to tackling the government's um, work? Would you foresee as continuing? Well, I certainly think that uh, we have to be absolutely uh, crystal clear in resisting any attempts to allow. American healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies, to sell their medicines here mm. uh, at inflated prices at the expense of, uh, of patients in the US, in the UK, uh, or indeed to take over the, the running of, uh, of, of, of departments or services in, in the NHS. And the same, a similar point applies to workers' rights or consumer or environmental protections. Um, but of course, one thing one thing I haven't mentioned is the EU. Yeah. Uh, the EU is where the bulk of our international trade currently resides. Mm. Uh, and we haven't had to regard it as international trade as such because we've been a member of the same bloc. Mm. But 54% um, of trade from the UK is with the EU. And mm. it, you know, it is much bigger than the 20% with the US. Yeah. We have to get a good deal with the EU. And that mm. is that has to be the number one priority for our international trade. Um, policy in the immediate future mm. um, uh, and of course with the COVID-19 crisis the negotiations with the EU have um, been far less, uh, have had far less attention and have made far less progress mm. um, and it was remarkable that the government just dismissed when asked um, 
the question of whether there would be a delay to the transition period. Mm. Uh, I dare say they will be revisiting that, but um, you know we're, mm. we're probably not going to give that a huge amount of attention because we need to wait and see. I think they need mm. to. They probably need to reach that conclusion themselves because yeah. uh, they don't want to be seen to having to uh, to, to, to do so. But um, you know, I, I don't see how they can do anything else. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll totally see, see what happens. Yeah. But, we, we we have to get an agreement that enables us to continue trading. It has to be, we have to recognise there are two regulatory systems in the world, the European one and the US one. Mm. If you sign up to the EU one, then um, you, you, under, you know, once you've done that, you can't then go and sign up to an alternative which mm. undermines those same EU regulations. You can't, ha you can't as a sovereign country, have side by side we are both signed up we're both aligned to the eu and the us at the same time yeah it's it, it's so contradictory inevitably one will undermine the other because otherwise you would need two completely separate um modes of production production lines in manufacturing you'd have to have two separate completely separate types of service um as, as, as well for slightly slightly different reasons in, in services but mm. How I mean, most businesses just couldn't operate like that. So the impossibility of, of, of doing so is um, is a real challenge, and the worry is that uh, we will end up effectively with no deal, mm. um, yeah, and then aligning to the US, but on very unfavourable terms. And yeah, we've got to really watch that that doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think I definitely agree with you in that that political rhetoric of trying to have it both ways of trying to have your cake and eat it i suppose has been very prevalent um do you think when when push comes to shove as in uh, perhaps later in the year or if as you say the transition period does inevitably get delayed uh next year uh, do you think when push comes to shove uh, the government boris johnson's government will ultimately uh choose to opt into that eu regulatory system or do you think their the winds that they're following will blow them to adopting and signing up to the American system? Well, the, the, well, the, one of the ironies of all of these negotiations is we are, the, the UK negotiators, or the government anyway, say that it all has to be done in, in private. We can't be shown the negotiating text because yep. you're showing the other side of your hand and yep. the negotiating position. Meanwhile, the EU is sharing very openly exactly what is in the negotiating. Yeah, chain. yeah. So everybody knows what is being said. Everybody knows that the for the EU, you have to accept that you go along with the regulatory regime, or you can't be part of it. Um, mm. And so, uh, and, and similarly with the Americans, because Congress will scrutinise this openly, we will know exactly what is in the negotiating text with. Um, with, 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 with the US. Because um, people can watch CSP. Who incidentally have made clear just how uh, how weak they think the UK negotiators are. Mm. Um, and they're prioritising it. Yeah, of course, they want to, it's, more, it's more important than to deal with the EU because it's bigger. But partly because they're just finding it impossible to negotiate with the UK because we we don't have the expertise in order to mm. reach meaningful conclusions and negotiations. I mean, it's, it really is quite damning, their attitude towards the, uh, the UK side. And, you know, supposedly um, the, the big allies of Boris Johnson in, in Trump and his, um, and his administration 
um, are quite reluctant to to talk even to even take negotiations first to a degree even to talk to us about negotiations mm. because they just don't have any points. Mm. Um, so so with that, there seems to be an opening for Labour um, an opening to sort of take the lead on this pretty much um, because I mean so so much is up in the air about the future of the country and the future of the world um, and so much is new you know we still have a we still have a relatively new government um, a completely new world which we're going to enter um, post COVID-19 or whatever that's going to look like uh, Labour's got its new leader uh, under Keir Starmer um, and also with Brexit, Britain, as, as we've talked about, is forging its new role in the world. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Conservatives, the Conservative narrative of Britain that has won out is of this uh, buccaneering, free trading nation that draws on the history of the British Empire, sort of. Um, and, and, and that's the kind of line which they've been very keen to parrot. Um and that's their that's their story. Um, it, what do you think Labour's story narrative around foreign policy and trade should be about Britain's future national identity, about Britain's place in the world? We're an internationalist party. Yeah, I think we I think we lost sight of that a little bit in the last few years. You know, some of some of the debate suggested that. Was that have been questioned, but I think we're very much, I think Keir is very much an internationalist mm. um, and partnering with our sister parties um, and with trade unions around the world, you know, a, an agenda which encompasses free tra- fair trade in its widest sense that, that recognises that in the end, if you want a successful economy, if you want to be prosperous, you do so by collaboration rather than by exploitation mm. uh, is, is, is the agenda that, that we would want to adopt, which is, you know, that, that is consistent with what socialist parties in across Europe would say. It is, I would suggest it's consistent with what the progressive part of the Democratic Party would say. Um, and I think that goes, goes quite a long way beyond Bernie Sanders too. I think, I think Joe Biden would recognise that. Mm. Um, and that that has to be, you know, if we're going to solve problems, whether it's how do we protect the health of, 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 of the world, you know, this, because this pandemic is not going to be over quickly. Mm. Um, and unless we have massive international collaboration, we're never going to deal with it. But you mm. have to take that wider. You have to say, well, what are the implications of that for the way we do business with each other? We've got to try and support the developing world, um, both because it's right morally, but it's also in our economic interests, because the more prosperous the, the rest of the world is, the more trading opportunities there are for us, the, yeah. more, the more prosperity there is to go around. And yet, and yet, we've also got to have more than half an eye on what is sustainable. You know, we have to raise the prosperity of the developing world, um, but we've got to recognise we have finite resources. We have to recognise that unless we dramatically reduce the um, emissions of the developed world, uh, we are going to warn the planet to, to an extent where it becomes impossible to stop um, 
the crisis being irreversible. And mm. so th th there are some dynamics at play here, which then lead into conversations around what is a, a fair economic settlement. Um, um, and then that points back to um, the imbalance in wealth. Mm. Uh, you, have very, you have an imbalance in wealth between the rich and the poor nations, and you have a, you, you have the greatest concentration proportionately of wealth in the hands of a small minority that we've ever had in human history. And mm. uh, so, unless that is uh, an unwinding, and you know, how this you know, the, the massive in, injection of funds by the world's banks that we've just seen, unless that's paid for by those who can afford to pay for it. We're not going to. We, we, we are not going to come out of this in, in in a good financial way at all. We are going to store mm. up enormous problems. I mean, I dread. I mean, we worry about the problems here quite rightly, but the problems of people without money, with poor health, who, who, whose housing conditions leave them really vulnerable, the lack of supplies to the front line. Absolutely right that we're dealing with them. But imagine how bad that is in the developing world. Yeah, that's like in in the slums of. Uh, of, of India and Africa, uh, and you know it, it is. Um, I dread to think. I really do. Just how many people are going to are going to die and suffer, and what the longer term consequences for them economically and therefore for their survival prospects are. Yeah. You know, I, think, I think I saw a report that um, half a billion people are going to end up in uh, absolute. Uh, you know, you know, in, in, in a position of, of, of starvation or near starvation as a result of that. I think yeah, right. gosh. And, you know, when that happens, and then you've got the, the layering on of what happens in, if the climate crisis isn't addressed, you know, the, the potential for people in those areas to, in desperation to take desperate measures. Well, we've got to do something about that economically as well as from a, a collaborative point of view on, on, in, in health terms. So I think this is where, in, where international development meets international trade, of course. Mm. But both together have got to, um, we, we've got to present with our uh, like-minded international partners uh, mm. a way forward that enables the world as a whole to, to survive this pandemic and mm. come together to, to look at the longer term. Mm. And that that fusion of international trade and international development and Britain's role in the world is really interesting. Um, obviously, that's been a hot topic of discussion over the past uh, over the past decade, but particularly in the past couple of years. Um, and we've seen many on the, the um, opposite sides of the debate who will say that, oh, uh, the international development budget, international aid should be cut. Uh, it's not relevant. Uh, why should we have to pay for uh, people's lives halfway across the world. Why should I care? That kind of mentality. Um, so, so if Labour's approach over the next couple of years is going to be trying to be an internationalist party and and emphasising the relevancy of um, international development and uh, helping the developing world, um, how how do you think Labour can persuade portions of the electorate that that is the right approach to take? Well, it's um, it's a very good question. We've lost four elections, uh, yeah. and um, we had a disastrous result in December. Um, and the polls at the moment, I, mean, I think they're skewed by people's natural support for the party of government in a crisis. But yeah, 
they weren't great before that. So we've got an enormous amount of work to do to reassure people that it's mm. in the interest of people in this country if we address the challenges of, of the earth. And I, I think in the end, yes, it is about identity. Yes, it is about um, people's uh, concerns over the change in the nature of society. Um, but it is also, but it is very much economically driven. If you get the economics right, if you offer people hope, if you offer people uh, a vision of the future that they believe you can deliver, mm. then I think things start to come together. And now, I, 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 my sense is that that is the the work that Keir and his team are doing. I think it's what the team I'm in with uh, Emily Thornbury. Uh, are, we're already starting to talk about these things, mm. um, and. It, it, it does build on some of what we did in, in Jeremy's time where I think we were grappling with some of these things, but perhaps we we didn't quite manage to put them together in a coherent way. I mean, we, we, you know, in my view, we went too far in the 2019 manifesto. I think we mm. just, just didn't come across as, as, as coherent because we didn't mm. put too much into it. But the broad thrust of, of investment in the domestic economy and in our export capability from having a national investment bank, investing in new technology, using the green the green industrial revolution as the heart of it, mm. that's got to be the right way forward. Mm. So the theme is already set. Um, and I think we've, what we've got to do is make that real for people. So where are the jobs? So if you take the Liverpool city region, we've got the plan for a tidal barrage, I mentioned tidal energy before. That, that can deliver uh, uh, green, green energy for a million homes in the northwest mm. uh, is a hugely exciting opportunity. Mm. Then you add in the insulation into people's homes, which can create a lot of jobs um, in its own right. Mm. Then you add in the fact that we're a manufacturing centre for the production of um, carbon, uh, of, of low carbon transport which we can do with trains because we've got a potential manufacturing capability here for hydrogen trains. Really. Mm. Then you add in, I mentioned agriculture briefly, uh, the opportunities in uh, carbon capture and storage in, 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 in agriculture. When you start to piece these things together and mm. you do it in parts of the country, so if you take Lee where people voted for Conservative MP for the first time in, in since Labour was a, a, a party that yeah. came um, started winning uh, elections a hundred years ago, um, or crew, or any one of a number in the northwest. Mm. Those start that you're starting to offer people something because you're you're saying to people, look, here are credible, real, high-skilled um, jobs that are going to transform your lives and those of your children because you're mm. going to you're going to get a good job. And so are they. And then they can be, they can dream of a kind of life. Yeah, we had this promise, didn't we, uh, that the next generation would always be better off than the last. It was a the theme of our Miliband's leadership, which we never quite, we quite got out with it. And um, I think now we've just got to make that happen. Um, yeah. And we can do it to a degree with the kind of devolved settlements we've got. So where you've got a Metro Mail, I've like got in the with with Steve Rotherham or Andy Burnham in, in Manchester. But you've got Steak with enormous influence and power in London, and we've got metro mayors around the country, uh, as well as local government. And I think local government does many good things. I think Labour and, and, and certainly the Welsh government, which is already doing some of these things, actually. Mm. 
you demonstrate what Labour can do where it's already got power to make a difference to people's lives, working with the private sector as a, as a partner, supporting responsible business um, and sustainable environmental um, action. You do you do capture the imagination. Yeah, you know, the younger I think the younger generation could see this, but mm. the older generation couldn't. And I think you start to you start to win on the battle of ideas. Um, and then, as we saw today, you know, Keir's ability, the credibility, the competence, the clarity of thinking that you see at the dispatch box. Uh, I saw somebody say you, you could see him starting to build a case against Dominic Raab just in those six questions. Yeah. Prosecute he, he, he did look uncomfortable at points, for, Dominic Raab. And yeah, that's going to work, isn't it? Because people are going to go, yeah, look, we've got somebody really sensible, credible, calm, statesmanlike here against this. You know, I mean, I, I don't underestimate Boris Johnson at all, but I think it is the way to deal with populism. So you've mm. got a combination of the credibility and the competence alongside um, a credible plan um, that that uses the work, it doesn't jump, you know, I think, I think it's clear, so we mustn't oversteer here, we, we've got to build on what we've already got, but it's doing it in the right way that, that the public will, will go, yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah. I like, I like what they're saying, because when you ask people that actually quite like the policies, they just didn't think we were capable of doing them, but putting them yeah. in yeah. together, and, I think we're well on the way. Yeah, and everything you were saying there reminded me of Keir Starmer's uh, leadership election slogan, another future is possible um so it's not just saying that another future could exist it's about saying to the electorate this is possible this is plausible we can deliver on this convincing them of that um and just on the subject of that leadership election um obviously a couple of years ago you were also heavily involved in the owen smith campaign in 2016 um do you how, how do your memories of that campaign contrast or complement um the memories of uh, the Keir Starmer campaign just gone because uh, you also supported him for leader, um, right? Well, look, um, what I think is, I mean, I think it's more important to look. I mean, I think that's so long ago; it just, it's not even worth spending any time. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I, 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 I mean, if you look at what happened in Keir's campaign, what you saw was this message of unity, yeah, put together, um, having a pluralistic agenda. So you had people from lots of different traditions in the party coming together because they want a Labour government um, mm. and where we can have the discussion about ideas and settle on them and put them forward to the, to, to the country. And they all recognise the importance of having a competent and credible um, a, a approach of being supportive, of ending the factionalism. Mm. And I think he will now do that in the party. Uh, which is no no small challenge. Um, mm. That will be the culture that he seeks to create. We know, you know, and having seen him in, seen the leadership, leadership campaign, mm. that culture was very strong. It was mm. very well uh, practiced by everybody who was involved, um, and you could see it in the way he related to the other candidates. He, he refused to be drawn into personal attacks or into undermining mm. in any way, shape, or form. You know, and he almost never put a foot wrong during that campaign on that mm. score or on any other, actually, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think that's how we run the party. And I think then the public will start to go, well, this is a guy who really does what he says he's going to do. Yeah. Uh, 
And, and it, it's so important as a leader, if you demonstrate the behaviours that you say you believe in, and then people start to do them themselves. Um, and when you get to that point in an organisation, and this is what he did as DPP, running the Prime Prosecution Service, this, mm. uh, I mean, I, this resonates with me because I used to do this for a living and I used to work with organisations who wanted to do this sort of stuff and we were trying to help them to do it. Yeah. Um, and you can see successful organisations stand out a mile because they have an organisation that is well-led, they have a clear strategy, they have a communications plan, they have um, good relationships and teamwork internally, and everybody is pulling in the same direction, everybody understands what they're trying to achieve. And if we can get to that point, um, as he did in the leadership campaign, in a way the party operates in opposition as a credible united force, I think we will then get the trust of the public much more quickly. Mm. Um, and they will give us a fair hearing on the policy side that you were asking about before in mm. the winning election. Mm. Awesome. Um, and just quickly before we wrap up, um, is a question we try to ask all our um, all our uh, interview guests uh, who are MPs. Um, what's the most punk rock thing you've ever done? <laughs> Uh, right, okay. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I was never sure whether I understood the question, but um, I used to play, I used to play uh, a lot of hockey and a lot of cricket, and oh, yeah. um, certainly when I was younger, I used to go on tour. Mm-hmm. I've gone on tour in both. Um, and um, as they say, uh, what goes on tour stays on tour. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, <laughs> uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jasper. And another episode of the Social Review podcast draws to a close. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Bill Esterson for coming on and talking to me about uh, his work and international trade and what the future uh, may hold for it. As usual, if you enjoyed listening to the episode, then please do uh, subscribe, tell your friends, give us a star rating on your podcast app of choice. Uh, It would mean the world. Um, And yeah, thanks ever so much once again. Stay safe, stay indoors, wash your hands, all that kind of thing, and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye. Goodbye.